Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I'm going to be honest with you. When you say, as I did to a bunch of public radio producers, I want to do a show about country music, it's not like they all stampede forward and say, oh, yeah, I want to do that with you. But I've been fascinated by country music, well, for a long time, but also this year with the incredible role it's played not only in just saturating the airwaves and the streaming waves. Do streams have waves? I don't even know. But if they do, yeah, they must. They're streams, right? They must have waves. Anyway, country music has been unbelievably popular and dominant this summer, and it's also ignited a lot of different controversies. And behind those controversies lie other controversies. So that's going to be our show today, and I think you're going to find it every bit as much fun as my producers thought it was going to be. been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for boldish pay, so I can sit out here and waste my life away, drag back home and drown my troubles away, it's a damn shame, what the world's gotten to, for people like me, people like you, wish I could just wake up, and it not be true, but it is. So country music, it's, it's always had an incredible amount of crossover appeal. It's never really been relegated to one genre that only one group of people listen to. You go back to, I don't know, 40s or 50s. I think Eddie Arnold was, you know, one of the biggest selling recording artists of all time. I don't think anybody even recognizes that name anymore. But people like Eddie Arnold and then people like Tammy Wynette and George Jones, Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton, and then you move on to Garth Brooks. These people sell a lot of records and they don't just sell them to country music fans or maybe everybody's a country music fan at the right moment. And that seemed to be something that happened this summer. And joining us to talk a little bit about that, and I should say a little later in the show, we're going to talk about some of the divisiveness in the country genre right now, the way there seem to be at minimum two kind of sub-worlds of country music. We'll also talk at the end about collaborations between hip-hop artists and country music performers. But joining us right now is Jason Lipschutz, Executive Director of Music at Billboard. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So as I was saying before we started recording here, We do the same thing that you do every year. You do it with a great deal more expertise and subtlety, but we try to guess what the song of the summer uh, is going to be. And I think the answer this year is that the song of the summer is sort of Last Night by the country artist Morgan Wallen, but it's really kind of four country songs, right? It's sort of, it's Morgan Wallen, it's Luke Combs with the cover of Fast Car, it's Oliver Anthony with Richmond North of Richmond, and, and also, to a certain degree, maybe Try That in a Small Town by Jason Aldean. There's a way in which... Somehow or other, until Olivia, Olivia Rodrigo came to rescue everybody, country music, white guys singing country music was sort of the, the story of the warm weather. Yeah, and it honestly ended 
it, the summer ended with another one. I remember everything by Zach Bryan and Casey Musgraves hitting number one on the Hot 100. And yeah, it's been it's been wall to wall country music, not just at the top of the Hot 100 in terms of last night, which spent months and months at number one on our chart. Last night we let the liquor talk. I can't remember everything we said, but we said it all. You told me that you wish I was somebody you never met. But baby, baby, something's telling me this ain't over yet. No way it was I last but also, yeah, Fast Car, which never got to number one or hasn't yet, I should say, but, you know, has been in the top five for months on end. So, yeah, it's been the dominant storyline of this summer in terms of the top of the Hot 100. And it's been a mix of, you know, established stadium superstars and then artists like Oliver Anthony, who no one <laughs> had heard of before his song went to number one. So it's been and yeah, as you, you mentioned, it's. It's been divisive. It's been controversial. It's And honestly, just as a music fan, to some degree, I love talking about this stuff just because it's really interesting. It's not, oh, X star artist has a new big hit. And look, I love when that happens, too. But this is also more interesting to discuss. Well, there, I, I do wonder if there are theories about what happened here, because this particular thing seems pretty unusual for a summer really to be st- the top one and two positions of the charts for a, a lot of the summer had one of those four four country songs. It was usually Last Night by Morgan Wallen, followed by Fast Car, which was kind of stuck there at two for a long time. But to have that kind of domination, is there, I, I read stuff that you guys do, and sometimes you're talking about how maybe streaming increased for country fans, maybe they were a little late to catch up with that or really have a big presence in the world of streaming music. Are there explanations like that that are helpful? Yeah, I think that that's the one that immediately comes to mind, which is country music on streaming platforms is is totally different in 2023 than it was five years ago, where you looked at any kind of streaming service, top songs, it was mostly pop and hip hop. Hip hop streamed extremely well. It still does, but country music was kind of relegated to country radio. There was some pop crossover radio stuff happening at country, but by and large, it just wasn't finding the audience on streaming services, not to the degree of, again, pop and hip hop. And when it when that's the case, when it just is gets dwarfed by other genres, it's going to impact its imprint on the Hot 100 and our other charts. But then so, you know, it took a couple years. Now it's a totally different story where Morgan Wallen launches an album. It floods the streaming charts. Zach Bryan, who hasn't even really been a star for that long, launches an album, floods the streaming charts. So, yeah, I, I think that culturally there are a couple different things at play, but just in terms of music industry machinations, that would be the biggest one to me. And and that's why. And then also kind of along with the that in terms of the timing of this summer, you have, you know, Luke Combs Fast Car, which not only was a big streaming hit, but crossed over to pop radio as well as dominated country radio. So there are a couple different things, but I think the streaming answer is is one of the biggest. And then you know, the the other thing is also like to get into the Morgan Wallen of it all, the fact that he has a new album this year, like he is enormous. I would argue he is the biggest country star of the past decade and Dangerous, the double album, which came out a few years ago, was 
enormous dis- in you know in spite of the controversy around him it's been a few years since that controversy he's back with a new album with his biggest single to date and so honestly his presence of just having a new sprawling project is driving a lot of the success of country music as a whole genre this year yeah, we should say the controversy had something to do with use of the N-word, but also had a little bit of a setback with a breaking of COVID protocols kind of at the height of COVID fear. I think he got canceled out of the Saturday Night Live appearance because of that. But in a way, it's a mistake to talk about all four of these as though they're the same, they're the same thing. As you say, Morgan Wallen's just a beast. He's a monster on the charts. He's going he's gonna to sell a lot of records. Luke Combs has done this very unusual thing. He took really one of the greatest pop songs ever written. I mean, the Tracy Chapman version of this, which he sings pretty straight up. You got a fast car. We go cruising and entertain ourselves. Still ain't got a job. So I work in the market as a checkout girl. I know things will get better. He doesn't even change the gender, right? He says, I got a job as a checkout girl. You know, he's just, the material he has to work with is amazingly good. And people have kind of maybe forgotten, or there's a whole generational cohort that didn't really know the Tracy Chapman song. So that's like a different thing, I think, than just being a superstar. And, and the funny thing about that is that you don't see a ton of covers become huge on the Hot 100 anymore. It just doesn't really, especially like faithful covers, you see a lot more interpolations and samples. And when the Luke Combs album came out a few months ago, I personally was surprised that Fast Car seemed to be getting the the push from the album. Like that was the song from the album that was near the top of New Music Friday on Spotify. I was just a, a little bit surprised that they were banking on this cover to, you know, stand out from that album. But yeah, as you said, it's it's such a timeless song. I think people were ready to return to that song. It's been long enough that, you know, a new generation can discover it. An old generation who loved it can return to it even in a different form. And yeah, it's been his his biggest hit to date. Yeah, and it, it is, and it ties into the other two songs we'll talk about here, in the sense that it is also a song about vanishing economic frontiers, about the deprivation of economic mobility for members of, of the working class in America. So, to whatever extent that you know, can tap into a vein of dissatisfaction, it obviously has that echo. And then you get to Jason Aldean and Oliver Anthony, both a little bit different. I mean, Aldean's a pretty well established country star. But some of the ascendance of that song, try this in a small town, was fueled by kind of virality coming from conservative media, which did the same thing for Oliver Anthony, right? Who this guy, he looks like Tormund from Game of Thrones. I don't think anybody had ever heard of him before, but say a little bit about how you see that part of it. Yeah, it's been really fascinating to live through that at Billboard of just seeing you know, this Jason Aldean song that and and for context, like, you know, I've talked a lot about this song. The main thing to remember is, you know, Jason Aldean, everybody's been like, oh, he's a big country star, big country star. He hasn't had a top 10 hit, I believe, in over a decade on the Hot 100. You know, he's been steady, but his kind of heyday was late 2000s, early 2010s, the advent of bro country. And, you know, he was a he was a, a lot a, a, like a lot of other stars kind of you know, a veteran who makes a lot of money on the road and, and has a good back catalog, but isn't scoring 
new hits. And, you know, try that in a small town. It, it sparked this this culture war where, you know, there are all these kind of dog whistle, like very problematic imagery in the music video and in the lyrics. Got a gun that my granddad gave me. They say one day they're gonna round up. Well, that dish might fly in the city. Good luck. Try that. And, you know, CMT banned the the music video from its network. And that kind of, I've been describing it as like an outrage hurricane where (laughs) the right gets outraged because it gets banned. The left gets outraged about it in general. And then there's just more chatter and and more divisiveness. And then the streams keep going up and up and up because people want to see what's going on. So, you know, that was almost a, a news story more than a smash single. It hit number one on the Hot 100. And then pretty quickly fell out of the top 20, I believe. So it was just sort of this culture war moment that produced a, a very fleeting number one hit. And the Oliver Anthony thing was even more complicated. As you say, he was a really a, an unknown. I think the YouTube video was a, a, a big thing in helping it. And once again, he was kind of uplifted by conservatives as seeing him as kind of a banner man for their cause. And he kind of repudiated that. He was uncomfortable with the fact that it was the lead into the Republican presidential nominees debate. He said at one point, actually, those are some of the people I was talking about in my song, Richmond, north of Richmond, who were screwing the country up. He didn't want to be seen as a conservative icon. If there's one thing here that's like a total one-off, I feel like this is something you would have a hard time recreating the Oliver Anthony phenomenon. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We just don't see songs like Richmond, North of Richmond often. A total out of nowhere, number one hit debuts. You know, obviously, we've had a lot of songs in the Hot 100 that hit number one from artists who are complete unknowns. Usually they take a couple of weeks or a couple of months to, to get to number one. Thinking about, you know, first thing off the top of my head is no one in the U.S. really knew who Carly Rae Jepsen was before Call Me Maybe happened. But, you know, that's a catchy song and it. it became a smash hit after a few months and suddenly people knew who she was this happened all in a week like mm-hmm. no one knew who this guy was you wake up on on the friday the beginning of the chart tracking week and see this song at the top of of itunes being heralded very kind of you know systematically by various conservative outlets and then you know it's interesting because that has been the opposite of the jason aldean song which was kind of you know, a, a one week or two week phenomenon. Richmond North of Richmond is still doing well. It's still, you know, uh, high on the streaming playlist. It's still, you know, within the top 40, I believe, of the Hot 100. So, yeah, it that maybe came from out of nowhere, but that has lingered on a little bit longer. Yeah. And we should say debuting at number one on the Hot 100 your name kind of has to be Drake or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so this, to, to do what he did with that part of it, to open at number one on the charts and be a complete unknown, that's something you don't see for decades, I would think. Yeah. And, you know, there are some asterisks. Like one of them is Olivia Rodrigo with yeah. driver's license, but she had a huge fan base. She yeah. was on a Disney Plus show and, and she, that song was kind of like crystallizing a controversy about a love triangle another one is like you think about american idol winners you know kelly clarkson's debut single hit debuted at number one but again that that had the the millions of people watching american idol 
behind it. This is, yeah, truly an, an out of nowhere phenomenon. So let's end our conversation by talking a little bit about Zach Bryan, because to me, this looks like another pivot. This is a guy, I mean, the fact that it's a duet with Casey Musgraves as the, the breakout single initially anyway, is to me a kind of uh, its own kind of dog whistle. I mean, she's somebody who has pretty aggressively separated herself from bro country, who has kind of asserted the possibility of a strong female identity within the world of country music. She doesn't seem to want to entirely leave it behind, but she also doesn't necessarily want to play by its rules. So teaming up with her is kind of saying, yeah, I'm not Morgan Wallen. At least that's how I read it. How do you read it? I think that's an interesting point. I mean, obviously, you know, Casey Musgraves has never been a huge singles crossover artist, but she she has a a huge fan base and, you know, she won the Grammy for album of the year. So she's a, a pretty established presence. You know, I think it's interesting that that song was the one from the Zach Bryan album to hit number one and, and it continues to do well. I, I think people honestly like love Casey. They love Zach. They love them together and they love that kind of interplay on the song. But honestly, his song has or his album, his self-titled album has done incredibly well on its own. And, you know, you see a lot of the songs from it on on the streaming charts. You know, I think that he is a sort of new school country star where, you know, he can obviously collaborate with country artists. He's not really part of any kind of conservatism movement whatsoever. There's definitely some some crossover in terms of rock and R&B and pop and, you know, uh, also just kind of a meteoric rise. Like, I don't think a ton of people knew who Zach Bryan was two years ago. So it, it, it does kind of encapsulate the fascinating place that country music is in right now at the top of our charts. Absolutely. Well, this is fascinating stuff. And I, I really have enjoyed talking to you and reading some of your work uh, also on the Billboard site. Uh, Jason Lipschutz is executive director of music at Billboard. Thanks for your time, sir. Thank you. Cold shoulder, closing time, Stay till the sun rose Strange words come on out Of the bone man's mouth When his mind's broke Pictures and passing time You only smile like that When you're drinking I wish I didn't But I do Remember every moment On the night Support for this podcast Comes from Hartford Healthcare Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. Watered the garden, but forgot to fill the well. 
So that's a song by Marin Morris. Get the hell out of here now has kind of a double meaning, as we'll explain to you. It seems to be in the song about a disintegrating relationship, and maybe it's also about another disintegrating relationship. Here to flesh that out, along with a whole bunch of other things, is Amanda Marie Martinez, a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of American Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, currently working on a book project titled The Industry is Playing the People Cheap, Race in the Country Music Business from Nixon to 9-11. Welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. All right. So let's start with Maren Morris because she's in the news right now. She's in a way sort of reignited this conversation that just simmers, as your book title suggests, across the decades. Explain what she has announced that she's doing recently and what that means. Yeah. So in the last couple of days, Maren Morris has announced that she, in her words, is getting the hell out of country music. So this comes after you know, over the past few years, really since 2020, country music has been pressured in new ways to kind of reconcile with its really systemic racism. And Maren Morris has been one of the few big names in country music to kind of call for that change. And we've seen that, you know, it's quickly become an inhospitable kind of environment for her and other artists that are looking to change things. So, while it's really unfortunate that she is leaving, I think that it is sadly not surprising. And what does it even mean to leave country music? I mean, country music is no longer a place. Nashville is barely recognizable in its current state from the way it used to look even 10 or 15 years ago. But what does it mean to leave country music? Does it mean, I mean, you can't read her mind, but does it, does it mean to go in a Taylor Swift kind of direction? Does it mean to repudiate the things about the genre she doesn't like? Is it clear what she's doing? Well, I think it it doesn't necessarily mean a huge sonic shift. I think that, you know, country music is unique because there is a very centralized power structure behind it, which of course is centralized in Nashville. And historically, if you want to make it as a country music artist, you have to kind of bend your back to really please these gatekeepers in Nashville, you know, to play the game. And a big part of playing the game, especially over the last couple of decades, is that you kind of shut up and sing, which is what the Dixie Chicks, formerly known as the Dixie Chicks, now known as the Chicks, what happened to them in 2003 when they were shut out of the country music business. So I think for Maren Morris, I think this is just a message that she's no longer going to kind of cave to this national system of these gatekeepers, right? And she does have the privilege now of being such a big act that, you know, she doesn't have to rely on this system of gatekeepers in Nashville to continue her success. And we've seen this with other artists. I mean, you you mentioned Taylor Swift, but also, you know, Casey Musgraves is another big artist who kind of really bucked the Nashville system and, you know, didn't cave into, for instance, very conservative country radio and their kind of demands. So with Maren Morris, I think that she's kind of fed up with this system in Nashville. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting thing. There's always kind of an interesting tension between leaving because you don't like the value set or the implied value set and leaving because the horizon takes you in another direction. I mean, if you listen to the last three Margot Price albums, 
It's not that she's leaving country, but I think you know she and a lot of other people realize, well, there's some kind of ceiling on the country audience, and I want to talk to a lot more people. There are people. I live in Connecticut. I'm surrounded by people who say that they would never listen to country music. They don't like country music. Country music is terrible. You know, if you want to get win even some sliver of those people over, you um, those same people worship Taylor Taylor Swift. So there's a there is. You want to get past that sort of genre prejudice of country, you almost have to change your sound a little bit or kind of de-identify at least somewhat from it. I mean, yeah, I think what, you know, what you're kind of touching on, you know, I would imagine the people that live in, in the parts of Connecticut that you are referring to, you know, are not politically conservative, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, someone like Mar- Marin Morris and Margot Price, as you mentioned, you know, they speak to that kind of non-conservative demographic given their personal politics. But I think what this all kind of points back to is that country music, in my view, is is really not so much about what it sounds like. It's really about the targeted demographic. So an artist like you mentioned, like Morgan Wallen, definitely has a kind of conservative consumer that that artist is targeting. And I think that you know, he speaks to the larger kind of set of national gatekeepers and who they're viewing as their targeted audience, right? So that's why you see an artist like Marin Morris, like a Casey Musgraves, who are going for not necessarily a conservative demographic, why they're pushed out of Nashville is because they don't fit within that system in Nashville, where they're really targeting a kind of older conservative predominantly white listener. So, uh, you know, apropos of your book, too, uh, and its title, this has been around for a long time, and it seems to boil up, you know, and get really hot at certain moments. I would say from 9-11 through at least 2003, if not further, we saw that. And I think Toby Keith in particular became kind of a standard bearer for conservative objections to any kind of questioning of, of the doctrines and behaviors of the Bush administration. There was a sense that he and other country singers, they kind of came to symbolize that my country right or wrong attitude don't question the authorities at this moment. And the Dixie Chicks, now the Chicks, were probably the biggest symbol of pushback against that. Do you see that as just sort of this little, these occasional moments where what's always going on behind the scenes bubbles up into the public? Absolutely. I mean, it's a very cyclical pattern with country music. And I see, I think that in, there's always political division, right? But there's times when it does boil over, you know, such as, within the past few years in the U.S., absolutely surrounding 9-11. And, you know, if you look at like the late 60s, the early 70s, obviously a very divisive time in the United States, that country music again and again is being used as this tool to kind of feed into right-wing kind of backlash. So I think now we're seeing that, as you said, like Toby Keith was absolutely weaponized in that fashion. And it's just a really cyclical pattern. Is there a sense in which, in some of these instances, everybody can kind of win? And what I mean by that is, and I think you can even see it going on right now with with Jason Aldean, and we'll focus on him in just a second, but 
you know, somebody takes one position and then somebody else takes the other position, there's a way in which you can begin to identify yourself with a certain subgroup that is going to flock to you. You'll get known. And this seems to be really happening these days as conservative media tends to exalt and lift up some of these singers that they see as standard bearers. But then there are people kind of responding to that. And in a way, they can also raise their profiles. I mean, I certainly hope so. But I think within country music, that's incredibly hard. So I think that that's how you see a lot of artists, you know, like a Margot Price that gets kind of lumped into the kind of sub side genre of Americana, right? Where I feel like Americana has become the home for politically progressive artists in country music who get pushed out of the kind of mainstream country music. Tyler Childers is another big example of this. So, you know, I mean, you're seeing this more and more in country music, and I just hope that they find similar opportunities for commercial success. And then you get to Jason Aldean. Now, this song, you see this as part of a, also part of a continuum, that there's a way in which, I mean, even setting the video aside and and the uh, its use of imagery from a courthouse where a lynching occurred in the 1920s. Setting all that aside, just that sort of urban versus country divide that the song kind of derives its energy from, you feel like that's a pretty old trope and that it is kind of a dog whistle trope. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the oldest tropes in country music, certainly, right, is positioning, you know, of course, obviously it's called country music, right? So there's an obvious preference for rural life, right? Um, But that has always come with a certain set of racism that is embedded in it, you know, whether that was through minstrel tunes in the 1920s, or, you know, the 1960s, a song like Merle Haggard's Okie from Muskogee, right, which is, you know, calling out hippies in San Francisco, right, uh, for their progressive politics. We don't let our hair grow long and shaggy Like the hippies out in San Francisco do And I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee So, to me, this is not an aberration for country music, this kind of trope. I think that it is speaking to a certain, you know, modern conservatism that we're seeing today. So I think that that's just the kind of difference that it is evolving, you know, alongside political conservatism at the same time. One of the things that fascinates me, Amanda, is that even as all this stuff is unfolding and it seems to be, you know, Aldine in particular seems to have heaped fuel on that fire right now, there's also a lot of Black country musicians, particularly some very, very exciting women writers and performers who are not backing down from being country. I'm thinking about people like Brittany Spencer. We could play her Cowboy Take Me Away or Sober and Skinny. What we'll do right now, we'll play a little song called Ancestors. This is by Miko Marks.
Amanda, that's a country song. <laughs> <laughs> you know, absolutely. It's absolutely a country song. It has uh, all the musical idioms that we kind of look for. And so th- there is this group of these young black women who are pretty exciting writers. I th- there's a sense, I think, maybe they got a little bit of uh, extra injection of, of petroleum from Black Lives Matter, a sense that you need some music that symbolizes some of the thoughts and some some performers who look like some of the people who are affected by Black Lives Matter. But may- what are your theories about that? I mean... There's also an argument of why I should just follow Marin Morris out of here. I'm not welcome here. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you mentioned, there are tons of exciting, particularly Black women artists in country music now. But, you know, that is something, again, that is absolutely not new. Country music has always, you know, to me, the, the great contradiction at the heart of country music is that it's become this symbol of racism, but it's always had such broad appeal that, you know, people from all walks of life have always enjoyed and made country music. And, you know, Black women are part of that. They have always been a part of country music. And, you know, for me, the most interesting time period in studying country music is the 1970s. And when I have done archival research on this period, I was stunned by the amount of ads that I encountered that were advertising Black women country artists, right? And it was just very clear language, this is a country artist, right? So I just want to highlight that they've always been there. But of course, you know, they have been forced to work in this national system that is clearly not hospitable to an artist who is A, not white, and particularly an artist who is not white and a woman, because this is an industry for, you know, as bad as its racist issues are, it also has a huge (laughs) issue with sexism. So they've always been there. My hope is that, you know, in this age of the internet and social media, where there's, you know, more opportunities to perhaps work outside of this very centralized national system, that artists like Amigo Marx, like a Britney Spencer, find opportunities to make money and not just make money off of their music, but really have sustainable careers in doing so. First of all, thank you so much for talking to me. I think it's maybe important also to say that for all of its flaws, and I'm not particularly a country music fan, but I listen to a fair amount of it. And, you know, whether it's it's Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires or there's a great song came out a few years ago called Waxahachi by Jack Ingram and Randall Lambert and John Randall. It's still, for all of the the baggage it carries around, I assume you wouldn't be working in this area of scholarship if you didn't feel, wow, there's still music there that could just tear your heart out or kind of get to the truth of things. Absolutely. I always say that country music by far is my favorite art form. It is the most beautiful, you know, there's a lot of bad country music with any type of art. There's a lot of bad versions of it. But when country music is good, when there's a beautiful country song, to me, there's nothing more beautiful. I get people sometimes they say like, why are you like, why do you hate it so much? Why are you attacking it? And it's absolutely the opposite where I love it. And, you know, I want it to be a more inclusive place because I do think it is the most beautiful type of art out there. Amanda Marie Martinez, thank you so much for joining us. Can't wait for the book to come out. And thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. Not 
Okay, for the most part, we've got one person who's doing almost everything on this show. She is the technical producer of this show. She's the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. She's the producer of this episode. It's kind of unusual, but that's Lily Tyson. Jonathan McPants is stepping forward to do some beautiful and artful music mixing, and that's everybody we have to thank. We're going to talk here in the final segment about the confluence, the occasional alliances between country artists and hip-hop artists, and we're going to do that with a guy I've enjoyed listening to in the past. Chris Melanfi is a chart analyst and pop critic who writes about the intersection of culture and commerce and popular music, host of Slate's Hit Parade podcast, writes Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series, and author of the new book, Old Town Road. So, Chris, before we get to Old Town Road, let's just talk a little bit about the fact that there these things do happen from time to time. And maybe sure. maybe we should begin with one of the cringier examples of this. This goes back a few years. It's a song called Accidental Racist. It's a, Oh, my. <laughs> yes, I know. That's we're we're going to start off right with that one. My well, goodness. Well, okay. let's get it out of the way. We'll get it out of our system. We won't have to think about it anymore. This is Brad, Brad Paisley with LL Cool J. intentions, maybe, but there was a way in which maybe the problem was they were trying too hard or kind of forcing something that wasn't happening naturally. At the time, this was not a well-received song. It really wasn't. And, you know, what was unfortunate about it was that Brad Paisley, when it comes to let's call it diversity in country music, was perceived as one of the good guys. He had been recording not only exceptionally good country music for the better part of a decade by the early 10s when he recorded Accidental Racist, but he'd even celebrated diversity in the lyrics to some of his songs like American Saturday Night. And the intentions behind this were truly wonderful, you know, and the execution... And I guess really the core idea was sort of misbegotten. The idea that you know, a person who doesn't want to be perceived as racist nonetheless was raised in a racist, you know, Dixie-style culture and is trying to come to some sort of understanding with a person who is dressed in a way that he encounters in public life that, I don't know, confuses him, scares him, and the two of them coming to some sort of understanding in the lyrics. It was just filled with a lot of racial essentialism and oversimplification of the issues. And you could tell their hearts were in the right place, but the song just didn't work. Yeah. I can't fully hate a man who sang, I'd like to check you for ticks. And I I think this was a concept that you described it perfectly. It's so easy to wrong foot this concept because you're you're trying to get past some uncomfortable ideas to a to a better place. And it just it was a very easy thing to kind of foot fault. And and they definitely did this. So let me pick something a little bit more recent, some very something very recent, a collaboration between two people who kind of dominated the charts or or were very important in the charts this year. You heard us talk for the whole show a bit about Morgan Wallen. But Lil Durk was having a lot of success this year. Skip the red dish. 
with some bad bitches. Gave me another chance to prove she ain't playing. I'm so sorry for that. So, Chris, I don't know. There's so many ways to look at this. Morgan Wallen was somebody who had a little problem with the N-word in the past. Uh, yes, he did. And there's also a way in which each of those artists might be interested in becoming more familiar to the audience of the other artist. Is that one of the major... I mean, so first of all, you have maybe an opportunity to do kind of blackwashing of, of Morgan Wallen. Wow, he's doing a song with a little dirk. He can't be as bad as we thought he was. But the, I think it's also... It must be also an economic opportunity or an audience opportunity for, for each person. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it wasn't as if they hid the motivations behind their collaborations. They've actually collaborated a couple of times. They collaborated back in 2021 when Morgan Wallen was on the cycle for his album Dangerous. And they've collaborated again this year when Wallen is back with his blockbuster album One Thing at a Time. And there are Little Dirk collaborations both times. And when the first collaboration happened back in 2021, Lil Zerk was not shy about saying that, you know, Morgan Wallen, after he had his N-word incident, Morgan Wallen was caught on video using the N-word with a friend. And, you know, there was a, you know, tremendous scandal for understandable reasons at the time. There were even attempts to kind of shut Morgan Wallen's promotion down by his own label and by the country music industry, which was remarkable. And basically the audience for Morgan Wallen rose up in en masse and, you know, continued streaming the hell out of his music and making sure that it didn't sink off the charts. And his One Thing at a Time album is almost surely going to be the number one album of the year, even over titans like Taylor Swift. But Lil Zerk, in 2021, when he first collaborated with Morgan Wallen, made it clear that, you know, he saw Morgan Wallen as a fundamentally good guy. He didn't see Morgan Wallen as you know, having prejudice in his heart. And this was kind of at a pivotal moment for Wallen. And Dirk and Wallen have remained friendly and have collaborated more than once. I guess what worked in 2021, it was thought would work again two years later. And hence, Dirk and Wallen are back together again. There are some other examples of these repeated collaborations Snoop Dogg and Willie Nelson. Gee, I wonder what they have in common. I wonder what they talk I about. I yes. So, but, but also, oddly enough, another person we've been talking about on this show, and maybe the person you wouldn't expect to hear in this particular conversation, Jason Aldean, he did a remix of Dirt Road Anthem where he featured Ludacris and then kind of returned the favor and actually appeared, uh, I believe, on a, on a Ludacris album. And they performed one of their collaborations on stage at the CMT Country Music Awards in Nashville. You know, here's Aldine, who really has been a flashpoint for racial tensions uh, in and around country music. Maybe not a guy you expect to find working with Ludacris. Well, and it should be noted that Dirt Road Anthem in particular, you mentioned that it was a remix with Ludacris, but Dirt Road Anthem was a song that Aldine had recorded in 2010 on his own, rapping the verses himself and singing the choruses. So even the original version of Dirt Road Anthem, it wasn't as if this was a pure country song with no hip-hop elements in it that Luda brought the hip-hop to. This was already a song where Jason Aldine, yes, the white middle-of-the-road country star, was rapping. It was a song originally written by Colt Ford, originally recorded by Colt Ford, but Jason Aldine turned it into a blockbuster on country radio. What the Ludacris remix achieved was it got it some play and some attention on the pop side. That version of the song actually made the top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100, which is the all-genre pop chart. And while it didn't become a major pop radio hit, it got it enough exposure with pop fans and hip-hop fans 
Friends that it crossed over. And that, of course, is the point, whether we're talking about Lil Durk and Morgan Wallen, or we're talking about Jason Aldean and Ludacris, or we're talking about, you know, Nelly and Tim McGraw back in 2004 on the track Over and Over. These are all attempts to kind of cross-pollinate two different audiences, and frankly, all the racial essentialism and connotations that go along with that. Right. So let's we'll, we'll sort of come to the end of our road with our, our old town road with the, the mother of all <laughs> hip hop and country collaborations. Everybody knows I'm about to say Lil Nas X and, and, and Lee Cyrus. So, Chris, this is your, you know, this is your heartbeat subject right now. So say a little bit about how this song came to be, how it came to be the way it was. I mean, Old Town Road is kind of the most Zoomer song that ever Zoomed in the sense that it is kind of a song and a meme and every genre all at once. Don't forget, by the way, that this is a song built out of an alternative rock sample in that that twang was originally performed by the band Nine Inch Nails of Trent Reznor fame. It was sampled by a Dutch DJ who put it on BeatStars. Lil Nas X heard it on BeatStars. He thought immediately, this sounds country to me. I bet I can turn this into a country song. And Lil Nas X admits in multiple interviews he was also trying to make it funny. He, if you find the song funny, that was Lil Nas X's intention because he was trying to go viral. He wanted the song to become not only a hit song, but a meme. And that's how it started. Now, what then flared up was the question of what genre this song belonged to. And famously, or infamously, it was allowed briefly on Billboard's Hot Country Songs chart, and then taken off that chart when folks in Nashville protested this is not a country song. Despite the twang, despite the you know accent, despite the subject matter of the lyrics, I got the horses in the back, wrangler on my booty, etc., it was determined that this did not have, quote, enough elements of today's country music in Billboard's parlance to warrant remaining on the country chart. And this turned it into a big flare-up and a cause celeb, with many people taking to their keyboards, whether on social media or journalists, saying, okay, are we saying that this thing isn't a country song because it doesn't sound like country? Because it sounds an awful lot like country. Or are we saying this is not a country song because this is a young black man who recorded it outside of the confines of the Nashville system? And then, of course, famously, the remix includes the country star Billy Ray Cyrus, father of Miley Cyrus, originally the recording artist behind Achy Breaky Heart in the 90s. And this was an attempt by Lil Nas X to cross the song over, yes, in a genuine way, but also a bit of a dare to the Nashville establishment. We are taking a white country star and putting him putting him on this hard-to-categorize record. Is it country enough for you? And, you know, spoiler alert, Billboard never put it back on its Hot Country Songs chart. It did receive some modest country radio airplay, but... Old Town Road is a song that just kind of confounds the very definitions of what genre is and how we categorize songs into genres and formats. And and I think that this is something pretty unique to the country genre in the sense that, I don't know, it's hard to picture someone going, this is an emo, I'm not going to listen to this. And I think for the most part, people don't consume music, even country or, or you know, possibly country music based on which chart it's on or what it conforms to. But the genre itself 
seems very, very concerned about what is and what isn't country. There's sort of a red velvet Studio 54 rope. They either kind of let you in or they don't. But what's that all about in your view? I mean, I often joke that country is maybe the only genre besides punk where the members of that genre want to police virulently this is or isn't punk, this is or isn't country. And in a way, punk has already almost kind of gotten over that and country still hasn't. You know, there's a great quote by historian Bill Malone, the country historian, who says, country music is full of songs about little log cabins people have never lived in, the old country church that people have never (laughs) attended. Country music's staple above all is nostalgia, just a hearkening back to the older way of life, either real or imagined, unquote. I love that quote because it points out that the so-called authenticity of country is a construct. And the definition of country has changed over the course of its roughly century-long history. This is a, a form of music that was originally, frankly, derisively called hillbilly music, but came to be called country and western, that has adapted to rock instrumentation. It's adopted the pedal steel, which is a an instrument that requires electrification. It is not an acoustic instrument. They've adopted funk beats as, re, as far back as the 70s and 80s. They've adopted trap beats. If you play other Morgan Wallen songs, including Last Night, you're going to hear the kinds of beats you would hear on hip-hop tracks. And, you know, there are bands like, say, Credence Clearwater Revival, who were considered a rock band in the 60s and early 70s, who later were kind of adopted by country. Or the Eagles, who were fundamentally a rock band in the 70s and were later really embraced by the country audience. So the boundaries of this format, this genre, are really quite porous. And you have to sort of unpack how much of country's border policing is about an actual sound, which, let's be fair to country, you know a country song when you hear it, it has a twang, it has a certain accent, it has certain types of playing, certain types of lyrics, but how much of that is musical and how much of that is identity-driven and even racially-driven? And that's the kind of thing that a song like Old Town Road really blows the lid off of. Wow. <laughs> that was amazing what you just did there. So we're going to have to wrap up here pretty soon, but maybe the, maybe the place to end is we're not going to see less of this, right? I mean, we're going to see everything would point to even more collaborations. Even though we've been through a very uneasy summer of 2023 with everything that happened with Aldine and, and Oliver Anthony and really Wallen to a certain degree too, and Luke Combs covering a, a song by a black female artist, it just seems as though this is part going to be a big part of the future, these kinds of fusions between hip-hop and country. Oh, yeah, this is not going anywhere. You know, there's um, a lyric to a song by uh, two white, let's call them hick-hop rappers, that's kind of the term of art for <laughs> country rap, Bubba Sparks and uh, Colt Ford that came out about a decade ago. And their lyric reads, Been doing this for some years, y'all so late, banging outcast and a little George Strait. And I think that summarizes what's going on. You basically have a generation coming up, Morgan Wallen is part of this too, who would play rap and country music back to back and they don't see them as completely separate worlds. They may understand that they are achieving a crossover by, you know, a thing like Morgan Wallen collaborating with Lil Durk. They get that, but they don't see why these forms of music can't cross-pollinate. So I don't see this going away anytime soon. If anything, it's only going to increase. Chris Melanfi, it's so exciting to talk to you, a host of Slate's Hit Parade podcast, writes Slate's Why Is This Song Number One, and author of the new book, Old Town Road. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Thank you. And we're done for the day. Thank you very much for listening. 